I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We're in the Ten Commandments right now, and this morning we're in verse 7, the third commandment. I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear these brands, Chick-fil-A, Costco, Trader Joe's, John Deere, Maytag, Toyota, Patagonia, Apple, Samsung. What about Pfizer, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, BP, Wells Fargo, Target? What comes to your mind when you hear these names? Companies spend millions of dollars to develop their brand recognition, and then they work relentlessly to maintain a positive brand reputation. Some brands, just by their name, their logo alone, sometimes just a color scheme, evoke positive connotations of quality and reliability and integrity, and other brands, not so much. There is an annual poll by Axius Harris that annually ranks the most visible brands in America by their reputations. And as you can imagine, that list is constantly changing. Companies are skyrocketing to the top as they win favor, and others are plummeting to the bottom after scandals or marketing fails or product flops. Proverbs 22 verse 1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. If you had to choose between the two, choose a good name. I think most marketing strategists and corporate executives would say a good name is gold. You have a good name? That is the entire worth of the company. Today we come to the third commandment, which is all about the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord. Actually, it's about the name of the Lord and you. You have something to do with whether God's name is reviled or revered on earth. So I want to invite you to stand if you're physically able as we read from God's word. We stand out of reverence for God and his word. This is the very word of God. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Let's pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We pray, O oh God, that you would cause your name to be great among the nations from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. We pray that your name would be feared. We pray that it would be revered. We pray that you would work in us through your word and your spirit a passion for the glory of your name. Do that, O oh God. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The third commandment, it's widely assumed this commandment merely forbids using God's name as a cuss word or 
maybe making empty promises, empty oaths, but the significance of the third commandment, the application of this commandment is far, far wider than I would say most people realize. And to grasp the full meaning of the third commandment, I think we have to start by considering the name of the Lord. It's mentioned twice here in this brief verse. Did you catch that? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Repeated twice. And right in the middle is this sober warning that breaking the third commandment brings Guilt, guilt that God is not going to sweep under the rug, guilt that God is not going to ignore or turn a blind eye to. This is not a small or insignificant thing. This brings real guilt before the one true God. So what does it mean to take the name of the Lord your God in vain? Consider first, God makes a name for himself. That's what the book of Exodus is all about. It is the story of how God made a name for himself by taking a people for himself. In Exodus 9, 16, God spoke to Pharaoh through Moses and he said, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that, here's why, here's the purpose, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. If you've been with us throughout this sermon series, that's not news to you. We have come back to this verse again and again and again because it's God's own purpose statement for the entire Exodus. Everything God did in Egypt, everything he did at the Red Sea, this was God's purpose so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And then that is repeated throughout the book of Exodus again and again. You shall know that I am the Lord. You shall know that I am the Lord. That's exactly what God did. God established for himself a name and a reputation for generations and generations all the way down to our day today. 500 years after the Exodus, when God established his covenant with King David, David responded to that covenant by praying to the Lord. Listen to these words in 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 22. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. It's the first commandment. There's no other God besides you. And there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. That is God's reputation. We have heard about you. We've heard of you. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people. Making himself a name. And doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. Your name will be magnified forever. This is how David conceives of the history of his people. God made himself a name. How did he do it? By doing for them great and awesome things. That's how God made his name. How does any hero make a name? By doing heroic deeds, by accomplishing glorious feats. So St. George slays the dragon, and Beowulf kills Grendel, and God makes for himself a name by doing great and awesome deeds for his people. Then, hundreds of years after 
David, prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah repeat the same theme. Here's Isaiah 63, verse 11. Where is he who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? So you led your people. Why? Why did God do that? To make for yourself a glorious name. In the Exodus, God did not merely make a name for himself. He made a glorious and everlasting name. And the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 32, you have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel and among all mankind and have made a name for yourself as at this day. As at this day. The the most glorious feats are told and retold, celebrated and remembered in poems and songs, generation after generation. Once a name is established like that, it has incredible staying power. The name and renown endures. Fast forward again to Nehemiah. When the people of Israel return from exile, they pray in Nehemiah chapter 9, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. This is what God did in the Exodus. And not only did God make a name, by performing these glorious things. When he took Israel to be his people, he also revealed his name to them in a personal and a specific relational way. At the burning bush, you remember one of the burning questions for Moses was, but if I go back to these people and they say, who is this God? What's his name? What am I gonna tell them? And that's where God revealed himself to Moses and the people of Israel and to us and said, I am who I am. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God's name establishes a relationship with people. You can't have a relationship with somebody if you don't know their name. You might, sure, meet somebody and talk for a little while and tell them what you do and learn what they do. But if you don't know their name, you go on from there, how are you going to find them again? Without, with anonymity, there's no relationship. God's name, when he reveals that, he establishes a relationship with his people. God's name gives people a way to locate him. That's what we use names for, right? You're looking for somebody, you call out their name. Children call out mom and dad if they're looking for their parents. You call out the name of your children if you're looking for them. Just by calling out a name, you locate someone. Find them. This gives his people a way to locate him. God, in revealing his name, he reveals his character and his identity, who he is and what he's like. In fact, theologian John Frame says, God's name is his glory. His name is his glory. Later in Exodus, we're going to see this in the fall, Moses asks to see God's glory, which is an incredible request. Show me your glory. Listen to how God responds to that. Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses said, Please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. 
Yahweh. I am who I am. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And then the next chapter in 34 It describes how God kept that very word. God did what he said he was going to do for Moses. It says in verse 5, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him. Can you imagine? And what did God do as he passed before Moses? He proclaimed. This connects to the second commandment. There is no visible representation of the invisible God that does justice to his glory. God reveals himself to his people by his word. He proclaims, the Lord, the Lord. This is God announcing his own name. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That, all of that package is God's name. Not just those few syllables we use to to call him Lord or God, not just those sounds we make, but his name is a description of who he is, his character and his attributes, all of his perfections, his glory. Moses asks to see God's glory. God answers by proclaiming his name, who he is, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, just, and yet merciful and forgiving. So God made a name for himself. He did that in the Exodus. And it is an awesome and glorious name. He took a people for himself and he revealed himself to them as the Lord. And then God's people take God's name. That's what happens next in the story. The third commandment says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That verb translated take, to take the name of the Lord, it means to lift or to carry or to bear. There are other Hebrew verbs that could have been used here to say something like, you shall not speak the name of the Lord in vain. You shall not utter the name of the Lord in vain, or you shall not swear oaths in vain, as Leviticus 12 explicitly says. You shall not bear the name of the Lord your God in vain. There's a close parallel in Exodus chapter 28. It's close in proximity, just a few verses or chapters later. Also close parallel because here we see the exact same verb used in connection with names. Here's what it says. When God gave instructions about how to make garments for the high priest, Exodus 28 verse 12 says, You shall set the two stones, stones engraved with the names of the tribes of Israel, on the shoulder pieces of the ephod, this garment that the high priest wore, as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel, and Aaron shall, same verb, bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. Literally, engraved on stones, sewed into the garment, carried on his shoulders, he is bearing the names of the sons of Israel before God as a remembrance for always. Literally carrying their names. So to take God's name is to bear his name, to represent his name. This is another way in which we see, as we've been saying for 
last many weeks that the covenant ceremony at Sinai is a wedding ceremony in which God takes for himself his people to be his bride. He will be their God. Just like a bride takes her husband's name, Isaiah 4 verse 1, the third commandment establishes the fact that God's people in covenant relationship with God take God's name. To be the people of God is to be called by his name, to bear his name. Notice how the third commandment stresses this covenantal relationship between God and his people when it says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God. The Lord your God. It could say the Lord God. The Lord your God. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You are his people. You bear his name. According to Deuteronomy 28.10, one of the blessings of covenant faithfulness, God said this, All the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. People of God are called by his name. This is how they are known. This is how they're identified in the world. Numbers 6, God gives this particular blessing to Aaron and his sons to speak over the people of Israel. Number 6, 22, you shall speak this way. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Incredible words. And then notice this at the end. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. My name on them. They're my people. They take my name. They bear my name. Second Chronicles 7.14, God refers to his people as my people who are called by my name. In Isaiah, God says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Jeremiah appeals to this very fact when he prays in 14.9, you, O Lord, are in the midst of us and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. This is his appeal. We are your people. How do we know? We bear your name. We're in covenant relationship with you. This same truth that God's people take God's name, that extends on into the new covenant. Think about it. Disciples of Jesus Christ are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. At the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15, when they're trying to figure out what what do we do with these Gentiles who are believing in Jesus? Where do they fit in all of this? James gets up and he quotes the prophet Amos and he says, hey, guys, remember? Uh, Amos said this was going to happen when God through Amos said, Gentiles are called by my name. This is not just Israel anymore. This is extending the nations are now in Christ Jesus being called by God's name. So the early church recognized through the gospel of Christ, God was bringing all nations into covenant relationship with himself. And at the very end of scripture in Revelation chapter 22, verse four, it says, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. This is what it means to be the people of God. He made a name for himself by taking a people for himself, and then God's people take God's name. Therefore, God's people live for the fame of God's name. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. To take God's name in vain means to bear his name in a way that is false, deceptive, empty, meaningless. Taking God's name in vain refers to all hypocrisy, which 
mischaracterizes God, misrepresents God. A survey of the Old Testament shows God's name is profaned not just in certain kinds of speech to avoid. Just, you know, make sure you don't say these bad phrases and, and then you're keeping the third commandment. No, any behavior that tarnishes God's name causes his name to be profane. So, yes, in some familiar ways like Leviticus 19.12, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Swearing falsely, appealing to God as witness to the truth of your words, except the words aren't true, so you're asking God to be witness and party to a lie. That profanes the name of the Lord. The prophet Jeremiah mentions false prophecy as another way God's name is dishonored. Jeremiah 23, 25. I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. This means the third commandment is broken by all false teaching and false prophecy. And anybody who wants to use the name of God as a stamp of approval on whatever false doctrine they've made up, their own ideas, their own subjective impressions and whims, and then they say, well, God said, or God told me, dishonors the name of God. Of course, God's name can also be reviled and blasphemed directly. In Leviticus 24, there's a case where two men got into a fight, and one of the men, whose mother was an Israelite, but his father was an Egyptian, so maybe he doesn't believe in God like all the other Israelites. Maybe his father's idolatrous views inform him. It says in Leviticus 24, he blasphemed the name and cursed and then the consequence is given a few verses later in Leviticus 24, 15. Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. That's what God says here. I will not hold him guiltless. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So outright denying God, reviling God, scoffing at God, mocking God. The nation of Israel, the civil penalty for such blasphemy was death. Which, again, in our day, doesn't that just sound so extreme where one of the highest values in our culture is the individual person's right to express themselves however they want to. I should be able to say and do whatever I want. So the creature's right to self-expression then is over the creator's right to be worshipped and revered which is completely backwards. How little we honor and esteem God's name is evident, isn't it? And how lightly we take blasphemy. In Malachi 1, we see begrudging and half-hearted worship violates the third commandment. There, God says his name is profaned when people say things like, what a weariness this is, that is, to worship God. When they bring sacrifices that are lame or sick, or it even says in Malachi 1, stolen. There are people bringing a lamb to be sacrificed, and it says, you got that by violence. They're just stealing a lamb from their neighbor's flock, and bringing it as a sacrifice, and God says, you profane my name. When you go through the motions, doing all the right things externally, trying to look good and look religious to everybody else, my name is profaned by such hypocrisy. Let me give you one more example. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9 says this. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Now, stealing 
is a violation of the Eighth Commandment. But apparently it's also a violation of the Third. In fact, just like these foundational commandments at the beginning, you could say all sin is a violation of the Third Commandment because all sin dishonors the name of God. So the third commandment, lest we think it's just about a tiny sliver of life, those brief and occasional moments when God's name happens to be on my lips, just make sure I have you know, very reverent thoughts in my heart when his name is on my lips and you know, avoid OMGs and oaths that could get me into trouble down the road. No, because you bear God's name all the time as his people, everything you do causes his name to be either revered or reviled. Isn't that just sweeping in its scope? Everything you do. Taking God's name in vain means living in a way that causes his name to be discredited. In Romans 2, Paul confronts self-righteous hypocrites and he says, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's what your hypocrisy does. It tells people God is worth nothing. He is not to be trusted. He is not to be worshipped or loved or obeyed. You encourage people to think little of the infinite glory of God by your hypocrisy. Ezekiel says this, Ezekiel 36, 20. But when they, this, this is God's people, when they came to the nations as exiles, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord. And yet they had to go out of his land. See the connection? They bear his name. They're known by his name. So people look at them and say, these are the people of the Lord. And look at them. And then God's name is profaned by them. I just think about this. Think about what God has done in choosing. He didn't have to do this. He chose to do this. In choosing to take a people for his own possession and then putting his name on them. And so associating his name and his reputation and his honor with people like us. Doesn't that just blow your mind? He connected his name to his people. And then what we see in Israel's history is that his name is profaned and blasphemed. Not because God has failed to keep his word. Not because God has broken his promises or been found unfaithful. Not because God was lacking in power or goodness or glory. But because his people refused to trust them. Even though he gave them every reason to do so. I, I just think of it kind of like online reviews. I mean, when you're shopping, I'm not the only one, right, who looks at the reviews. How many stars? And I skim through a couple comments. And I check the most negative ones, and usually go, that person doesn't even know what they're talking about, so that's not a helpful review. The online reviews can be profoundly helpful. If you pull something up and you immediately you see it's got two stars, you're just kind of like, next, right? What about false reviews? Lies about a product or a brand to besmirch the reputation of that product. I mean, if you, that's your product, your company, your name, how do you repair that? You can't get rid of those reviews once they're out there. Any time anyone refuses to trust God, it's like leaving this false negative review about God for the world. Unbelief says God is not good. He's not gracious. He's not glorious. He's not great and awesome. 
He's not to be trusted. Of course, God's own character and glory is totally unaffected by false reviews. He remains who he is. But his name and reputation actually can be profane, dishonored. Anything that undermines God's trustworthiness, anything that obscures his glory, anything that impugns his character, anything that dissuades others from trusting God is a violation of the third commandment. And we have all violated the third commandment. So how can God's reputation be repaired? This is crucial to understanding the work of Jesus. God sent his own son to glorify the father and repair the damage that third commandment violators like you and me have done to God's glorious name. Everything that Jesus said and everything that he did, he says in John chapter 5 and again in chapter 10, he spoke and he acted in his father's name. He perfectly honored the Father. He fully trusted it and relied on the Father. So we have blasphemed God's name. We've damaged his reputation. We've slandered his glory. And Jesus lived and then hung on the cross and died to uphold for the entire world the infinite value of the name of God. You want to know what it looks like when the glory of God is maligned? Look at Jesus hanging on the cross. That's what our sin does to the glory of God. That's what blasphemy does. And yet the irony of it all is that he willingly endured that ultimate loss of glory in order to vindicate the glory of God's name. There it is, our blasphemy, hanging the glorious Son of God on the cross, and there he is vindicating the glory of that name, saying this is how much God's glory is worth. Which means he and he alone is able to save blasphemers like us. So Paul writes in Philippians 2, therefore. And this therefore comes after he has gone on and on about how Jesus left his glory and emptied himself and became nothing became a servant and willingly suffered and endured death. And then Paul says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Acts 4.12 says there's salvation in no one else but there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the grace of God. He has given us his name by which we can be saved. And so now, the way we keep the third commandment is by living for the fame of Jesus' name. This commandment is not fulfilled just by avoiding speaking God's name in flippant or irreverent ways, although that is entirely appropriate to do. This commandment is fulfilled when the fame of Jesus' name is the passion of our lives. That's what this calls us to. The fame of God's name is the passion of God's heart. 
It is the plot line of human history, as God himself says in Malachi 1.11, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And lest you think this is just something that's going to happen at the end of the world, and in the meantime, nothing about this is happening now, just consider that the name of Jesus is being praised in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, of all places. Where are we? In the middle of nowhere. And Malachi 1.11 is coming true today. You can drive through all kinds of small towns in the Midwest and the name of Jesus is being proclaimed today because God is keeping his promise in Malachi 1.11. Thousands of years later, his name is named in more places than people thousands of years ago could have ever imagined. He's doing it. This is what's happening in history. And so the fame of God's name is to be the passion and purpose of our lives, reflected in attitudes like Isaiah 26.8, your name and remembrance, or I prefer the NIV, your name and renown, your name and your fame are the desire of our soul. It's what we want more than anything, that his name would be honored and known and trusted. Psalm 115, one, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Psalm 8, one, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Or as Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6, 9, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. The name of God is most revered when we call on his name. The silly thing about humans is we're always inventing these like extra ways to think we're keeping the commands that have actually nothing to do with it. Throughout history, people have invented these safeguards to steer clear of violating the third commandment. So some people have avoided saying or writing God's name at all. If you ever come across in reading where it's just G dash D because, you know, if you put an O in there, maybe you misused God's name. Scribes were said to have washed their hands before and after writing out God's name. They come to that as they're copying, they get up. And there's a reverence about that for sure, but God's name is hallowed not by superstitiously avoiding it, but by using it, calling on it, praying in his name, trusting in his name, blessing his name, blessing others in his name. That's why he made a name, so that he would be trusted. I just, you know, the, the glory of a doctor is to actually make his patients well. And the glory of a lawyer is to actually win cases for his clients. And the glory of God is to save everyone who calls on him. And that's what he promises to do in Christ Jesus. So let's pray. Father, we do come to you in the name that you have given us. Not just the sound, not just the syllables or the letters, but the precious name of Jesus, which refers to all that Jesus is for us, all that he accomplished for us in his living, in his dying, in his rising, in his reigning. 
we would not dare approach you any other way because you have given us this name by which we might be saved. We pray, Father, that through the work of your spirit, you would cause your name to be revered in our hearts, in our minds. We pray that the name of Jesus would be our greatest passion, our greatest desire, our longing. We pray that the fame of Jesus' name in Sioux Falls and to the ends of the earth would motivate and inspire everything we do. As Paul says in Colossians 3, 17, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We thank you, Father, for this name that is above every name. Amen.